we launch into new stuff tonight, we're going to briefly review from last week. Um, last week, we talked about Jacob and how Jacob and his brother Esau were the first recorded set of twins in Scripture. And God had marked Jacob, the younger of the twins, way back when he was still in the womb to be his chosen man through which he would perpetuate the Jewish nation. But we know, at least early on, Jacob kept trying to kind of jump the gun with some lying and deceit and kind of trickery. And we know that the key event for Jacob was the fathering of his 12 sons through four different ladies, Leah, Rachel, and their handmaidens. And the key event for Jacob was wrestling with the Lord. Um, when he finally had this event where he wrestled with the Lord all night long, he came face to face with God's power. It was then that he finally ceased his struggling and received the blessing he so desired from God. And we talked about last week, he walked away from that encounter with God with a name change. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel. And he walked away with a limp. And from Jacob, we moved on to the 12 sons of Jacob. And again, you know, that's not one person, but one group. Now, the key event there was the establishment of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this wasn't all that important right here in history, right after Jacob had them. But later on, many years, hundreds of years later, when they went back to the promised land and land was being divided up, then those tribal divisions were extremely important. And when you look at lists of the tribes compared to list of the sons, a lot of times when you see the landers distribution, you don't see the tribe of Levi because they were the what? Priests. Priest. That was the priestly line. Their main focus was to be in the tabernacle, in worship, eventually in, in the uh, temple. And so they did not get a land distribution. And then we talked about how Jacob so loved Joseph's first two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that they were like sons to him. He considered them to be on the same par as Reuben and Simeon, and he made them heirs or part of the, the 12 tribes. And so jo Joseph's inheritance was divided between his two sons, those first two sons. So when you look at the list of sons versus the tri 12 tribes, that's why there's a discrepancy. And then the second key event was kind of where tonight springboards from, and that was how Joseph ended up in Egypt. And we talked about how, y'all know the story, uh, uh, Joseph's brothers did not like him. They, some of them wanted to kill him. They sold him into slavery in Egypt through a, a set of circumstances obviously ordained by God. He becomes second in command in Egypt during this very crucial time, seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And God brings the other brothers to Joseph, and he eventually reveals himself. And in this way, God protects and sustains his chosen people during this time of famine. So that's kind of where we pick up tonight. So I'm going to pause there. But the key relationship for the 12 sons of Jacob was the line of Christ or the seed of woman. And how we now have... We talked about the promise way back from Genesis 3.15 that God would one day bring an individual, a man, from Eve that would destroy Satan, that would crush the power of sin and death once and for all. And every time a baby boy was born from that point on, there was the hope that this might be the promised Messiah. And then we talked about how as we continue to move through Scripture, specifically the Old Testament, we'll see the line through which Christ will come farther and farther refined and established. So now we obviously know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then on that chart that I showed of the 12 sons of Jacob, 
Um, we know that eventually Jesus will come through the line of Judah. And then in a couple weeks, we'll get to David. And, but we'll see that line further and further refined. So back to the um, Joseph. Uh, let me see if this is going to work tonight. There it goes. So I put this in your handouts, and it's kind of fuzzy there. It's supposed to be a little more in color here. Because I remember reading as a kid, and so the Israelites, you know, settled in the land of Goshen. Well, I thought they were in Egypt. Where in the world's Goshen? So a little bit of background about this. Remember, Joseph is still second in command, only under Pharaoh. There's five more years of famine left. Jacob, uh, Joseph says, go get Dad Jacob. All you eleven come back here. Settle in Goshen. Now, he didn't say, because you were really dirtbags to me when I was a lot younger, um, I think I'm going to give you all the, you know, the ghetto of Egypt or the bad part of Egypt or the unfertile land. He says, I want you to settle in Goshen. This was like the choice land in Egypt. Fertile, rich soil just southeast of the uh, Nile River Delta. So this is prime property. So we have essentially the 12 sons now of Jacob, all living, and Jacob himself, all living in Goshen. Who has um, Genesis 47, 27 to 31? Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time grew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh, and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my father, bury me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Where is me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Thank you. So um, the first little section of that passage, um, uh, Israel lived in the land of Egypt. That means Jacob. And then they acquired, and then it also, well, later on it refers to Israel as Jacob. But in the beginning, it also means the nation, like the other sons. So they're in Goshen, they're acquiring property, they're becoming fruitful and numerous. This is like the first little hint that the Egyptians are probably not going to like this. And so they are thriving already. It's only been 17 years, and the Israelites are multiplying, things are going well. And uh, Jacob's one requirement is, before I die, make sure you bury me, not in Egypt, but in the family land. And so uh, Joseph promises, and then basically... Shortly thereafter, uh, that's the end of Jacob. You still have these 11 sons of Jacob living in Goshen. Now, this next section that someone's going to read in just a minute, it makes me sad because it's just kind of like, oh, well, that was nice while it lasted. Who has Exodus 1, 8 to 10? I do. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and in the event of war they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. Thank you. The key phrase in that passage is, uh, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Clearly, Joseph managing to accomplish what he did, you know, the seven years of plenty, storing up all that they needed, and not only for Egypt, but obviously for neighboring countries, for jo- for uh, Jacob's sons to even show up there for grain in the middle of this famine and, famine, and then to have enough to sustain 
Egypt and surrounding families all through the seven-year famine, his renown probably carried on for a long time. And stories were told and, you know, children were told. But eventually enough people were born and lived and died. And suddenly there's a, a pharaoh who's like, I don't know who this Joseph guy was. And I don't care that these are his people. We got to do something. And so by the time this pharaoh arose to power, it says in this passage, we need to deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. They had already done a lot of multiplying, but they're worried about continued growth. And so he institutes uh, a plan to kind of deal with that. And his concerns are they're going to get there's going to be more of them. They're going to join themselves with our enemies. They're going to align themselves with our enemies and fight against us. And then they're going to leave, which, you know, if we've got some people we can enslave and make them do our dirty work, then we don't want them to go anywhere. So he institutes a plan. The first plan is to have the Egyptian taskmasters turn up the heat, tighten the screws, bear down on these people, and let them have it. No mercy. And so what happens to the Israelites when that when they do that? Say again? They become slaves. And then the tighter, they multiply. They did better. They become stronger and more vigorous and hardy and, and more of them. And so the idea of bearing down harder has the opposite effect. Then this Pharaoh has a great idea. Okay, let's talk to the Hebrew midwives. All you Hebrew midwives, when you get to the birth of these Hebrew babies, if it's a boy, immediately kill it. Fortunately for Moses and others, these Hebrew midwives feared God, the scripture tells us, and they did not obey. There was a little civil disobedience going on. Um, And so they did not obey Pharaoh's command. Does anybody know what they told Pharaoh as the reason why they couldn't obey? Give birth too fast. (laughs) Yep. Those Hebrew women are not like you wimpy Egyptian women. By the time we get there, the birth is already over. And we're not gonna do anything at that point. So yeah, so they said we can we just we do what we can, but you know, they're just too strong for us. So God um, and the scripture tells us too that God blessed those midwives because they feared God and did not listen to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's attempts at controlling the Israelites fail time and again. So things are getting more and more tenuous, and I'm sure the Israelites, I I don't have a specific verse to point to, but I'm sure the Israelites feel, obviously, this, and more and more they begin to cry out to God for a deliverer. So enter Moses. So a lot of this, you guys know the story. Moses lived around 1500 B.C., Again, his life was spared, obviously, by a disobedient Hebrew midwife who did not kill him at the time of his birth. He was also spared by a very resourceful mother. Um, She kept him hidden for as long as she could, and then when when he was too big and too loud, and she could no longer keep him hidden, she created the basket, put him in it, put him in the river, and, you know, here comes, of course, as planned, Pharaoh's daughter. And so she sees the baby, decides, I'm going to take this child as my own, And big sister Miriam is watching the whole thing. So when the princess says, hmm, what to do about a nurse? Miriam pops up. I got a nurse who's perfect to nurse this baby. And so, of course, goes and gets Miriam and Moses' mom, Jochebed. And so Jochebed gets to take care of, gets to nurse her very own child. So, you know, she went from probably being worried that she was going to have a son who might be killed to trying to keep him hidden to now, I mean, she can go wherever she wants because this is Pharaoh's daughter's kid. So it's really a neat way how God protected him from the early months and years of his life. A lot of people have asked me, do, did Pharaoh know about his Hebrew heritage? 
And I would say yes, based on his reaction later on in life to Israel's mistreatment. But I have a feeling that Jochebed did a lot of teaching and training and however much time she had with him before she turned him over to Pharaoh's household. So y'all know as he gets older, there is a pivotal event where Moses, I mean, yeah, Moses sees the harsh treatment of the Israelites, particularly by one um, taskmaster. He strikes out, kills the man, and immediately word spreads, hey, you know what Moses did? And word gets around, and he is like, I am in trouble. So he hits the road for Midian. And it is in Midian, in the burning bush event, that God calls Moses to be his spokesman to Pharaoh and to be his deliverer of his people out of Egypt back to the promised land. So a two-pronged key event here. The first key event is Exodus from Egypt. Who has Exodus 3, 6 to 10? I, I do. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land, the good and large land, so that flow with milk and honey to the place of the Sorry, Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. You did awesome. I'm telling you, I'm gonna start starring these that have like a lot of places and a lot of names on them. Sorry about that. So thank you. Okay. So this is this you know event when the Lord appears to Moses and says, "I have chosen you." This passage. Uh, just reminds me of how God is personally involved in the lives of his people. These cries, these, you know, uh, calls out of desperation for salvation, for, for deliverance, for it had not gone unheeded. And God had a plan, and, you know, the, the deliverer did not show up until his appointed time, but he heard the cries of his people. That's very reassuring to me. So Moses reluctantly agrees to be God's spokesperson, and he confronts Pharaoh. And you know how that went. So he goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's not inclined to agree to that. And so the plagues ensue. And so a bit, a word about these 10 plagues. I like this handout because it's got the little picture. So as a quick reminder, and if you just love Bible trivia and you'd like to memorize all 10, there's a very cute little acronym that my 12-year-old daughter found when she had to memorize these for a quiz recently. So, um, not that anybody's going to write this down, but I thought it was funny. Bright, friendly girls frown less by having laughing, dimply faces. So, if you remember that <laughs> phrase, then you can remember all of them. Um, and so, the first two, turning water into blood, and the frogs were replicated by Pharaoh's magicians. So, Pharaoh was not terribly impressed with the first two. He's like, my guys can do that. Numbers 7 through 9 did not occur in Goshen. So, it's interesting to remember that some of these plagues... The frogs, the gnats, the flies, the diseased livestock, some of those affected the Israelites in Goshen. So, you know, they had to kind of deal with some of that. But um, seven through nine, they were spared. And then, of course, they were spared number 10 if 
they followed God's um, command, God's instruction, to put the Passover lamb's blood over the doorway. Then the Lord would pass over that home and would spare the firstborn. And in reviewing these with my daughter Joy, I was reminded that not only was it the firstborn child in every household, but it was livestock as well. The first, I didn't, had, oh, I just had kind of forgotten that. So, you know, this affected families in a, in a, you know, emotional and physical way, but also in a financial way. So this was a big deal. So the 12 plagues, and y'all know the story, sometimes Pharaoh would be like, hey, okay, go, and then, oh, never mind. He changed his mind, you know. And so finally, after death of the firstborn, I gotta go back now, Pharaoh says, okay, you're out of here. Unfortunately, we know that did not last very long. So the Israelites pack up, head out toward the promised land. The very first obstacle they run into is the what? Red Sea. What are we going to do about this Red Sea? And God miraculously opens the water, heaps up the water on both sides so that the nation Israel could travel across on dry land. I cannot imagine what roughly a million people looks like going through a river like that with water. I mean, I would love to have seen that. Water, I mean, I have this kind of weird thing about water anyway, kind of being, oh, I don't know, anyway. You know, I think I'd be running. I don't think I would be walking anyway. I trust you, Lord, but I want to get out of here. But they all make it through, and as the last Israelite is stepping over, we know that by this by this time, Pharaoh's army is in hot pursuit. You know, but I don't know how far out they were, but definitely on the dry land as well. God allows the waters to return to their natural position, and there goes Pharaoh's army. So the first sort of obstacle or uh, hindrance to getting back to the promised land is taken care of, you know, like that. You'd think that would register in the minds of the Israelites and actually, you know, come back to mind later on, but not so much. So now the Israelites go immediately to the promised land. This is something as a kid I never could figure out. Did they just not have a map? Why did it take 40 years? Like, what is the problem? Like, Moses had a terrible sense of direction. But they went straight there. It did not take that long. The 40 years, we'll talk about where that came from. Y'all know. But anyway, they go straight there. Now, remember, Jacob and his 11 sons living in Canaan, living in the promised land, the land of milk and honey, Israel, as we would call it. They leave there to go to Egypt, stay there for 400 years. It's not like they just closed a gate and hung a little, we'll be back in two hours kind of sign on the gate and said, you know, leave it just like it is. Obviously, this is a prime piece of a property and real estate. And so tons and tons and lots and lots of pagan nations and peoples and, and groups have moved in and basically assumed that this is now their, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law kind of action. And so they feel like they have the right to be there. They've been here all these years. So it's not empty, obviously. And in my head as a kid, a lot of times I thought, well, it's just empty. They just go in and it's theirs. You know, it's like your house. When you go on vacation, you come back, you don't have people living there. And so the idea is God's, or they decide to um, send the spies, 12 spies. How many spies felt like they could conquer Canaan with God's help? Two. Anybody remember their names? More Bible trivia. Caleb, Caleb. and Joshua. Joshua. Very good. So Caleb and Joshua said, you know, it's, uh, we can do this with God's help. The other ten said, there's no way. We're like grasshoppers to them. We came all this way. We're going to be killed, you know, trying to do this. Let's go back to Egypt. Uh, slavery is better than this. And 
So, God says, mm, that's not how we're going to do things. And so who has numbers 14, 33, and 34? Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explore the land. You will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. Woo! So the punishment is that the 12 spies were in the land for 40 days spying out Canaan. And for every day that the spies were in Canaan, one year of spent wandering will be spent wandering the wilderness. And so essentially an entire generation will die off. Now God did spare Joshua and Caleb. So by the time Joshua comes to power after Moses, he's like one of the oldest guys in the whole, the whole group because his counterparts are gone. A pretty severe punishment, as that last bit of that passage says, where to go? You will know my opposition. They will know that they have been reprimanded by the Lord. So this is where the 40 years of wilderness wandering comes into place. So the key event B here is the giving of the law. Now this is where I just think things get crazy. God was bringing the Israelites out of very pagan Egypt, and he was sending them into extremely pagan Canaan. And he wanted his people to be different, to not be like their neighbors, to, to continue to follow him and to be set apart. And so he decides they need a law. So just a few months after leaving Egypt, God sends Moses up Mount Sinai. And y'all can read the passages. I have some of them listed here. It's around Exodus 32. And there's this whole process where God tells Moses the people need to sanctify themselves and they need to get ready and then you're going to come up and I'm going to give the law. So Moses proceeds up Mount Sinai, receives the law from the mouth and hand of God. God speaks it orally and he engraves it on tablets. I, I just love to see what that looks like. Yeah, I'm, I've never seen like actual engraving, I don't think, except for my dog's, you know, buddy tag, you know, at PetSmart. But I would love to see the hand of God inscribing this law on these tablets. So meanwhile, all heck is breaking loose down at the base of the mountain. So Aaron, Moses' brother, the first priest, which we're going to talk more about in a minute, of the nation Israel, has gathered the people and they are in the throes of idol worship. Do you not find it ironic that Moses is up on this mountain hearing God say, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol or bow down to an idol. What the heck is going on down there? Making idols and bowing down to them. I just find that so ironic. Like they're right in the middle of breaking it and it hasn't even like the ink's not even fresh yet. Um, so clearly God knew his people needed a law to keep them in check. So this is an amazing passage to me. Who has Exodus 32, 7 to 10? This is great. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves an altar camp, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, 
and that I may destroy it, and I will make of you a great nation. Thank you. So Moses is up here. He is focused on talking to God and getting the law. Okay, that's his focus. God obviously knows what's going on down, down, I started to say downstairs, down below at the base of the mountain. And he says to Moses, you got to go down there because these people are at it again. And this, he tells Moses exactly what's happened. And the, the justification, by the way, of the, of the nation Israel was that Moses was taking too long up there on the mountain with God. And that's why they needed to intervene and, you know, and, and create this golden calf. However long they thought Moses should take, it was taking too long. And so God tells Moses, this is what's going down. you got to go down there and take care of it. But what God says to Moses, I don't know that up until the past few years I really understood. He says to Moses, I've seen these people. They're obstinate. Leave me alone. Let my anger burn. I'm going to destroy them, or that I may destroy them, and I'll make of you a great nation. I'm going to start all over, Moses. You're the man now. And, I mean, he is furious with these people. And if you continue reading in Exodus 32, <coughs> Moses actually talks God out of destroying the nation Israel right here and now, just a few months after leaving Egypt. And Moses, his rationale for talking to God is he says, Look, God, Lord, God, if you destroy these people now, what are the Egyptians going to say? You just let, you know, they just came out of slavery. They made it to the wilderness only to get blitzed by their God. Like, that would be terrible. And then he reminds God of the Abrahamic covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not Moses. And so the scripture says, if you read it, it says, the scripture says, the Lord changed his mind. I think that's amazing. So that's the kind of relationship Moses had with the Lord. God, listen to this man. Yeah, and so God changes his mind and says, no, I'm not going to wipe him out, but there is going to be some punishment. And so y'all can read all about this is where it just gets crazy. Moses goes back down and he grinds up the, uh, or burns the uh, golden calf, grinds it up, puts it in the water, makes the sons of Israel drink it and smashes the tablets. He's furious. The law gets smashed. God, in a few more chapters, God has to re-transcribe or inscribe or engrave or whatever he did. The tablets, we have to do, you know, set number two. There is major punishment. There's a lot of uh, killing that Moses basically says, you are to take, you know, the life of your brother and your neighbor. And, like, I can't remember the exact number. I read it two nights ago. I want to say, like, 3,000 Israelites fell that day. So huge punishment as a result of this idolatry. But God's hand is stayed, and he does not wipe out his chosen people. What was the point of this law? Was it just so that the Israelites could be goody-goody? Was it so that, you know, God could say, ah, see, I told you, you couldn't keep it? No, there were three main things that this law was designed to do, to set the Israelites apart from everyone else around them. God wanted them to be different from anyone around them as far as neighbors, other peoples, other religions. He wanted them to be different. It was designed to point out their sin. Uh, nobody could keep all 613 civil, moral, and um, civil, moral, and religious laws. Nobody could keep all 613. So it was designed to point out their sin and ultimately to show them their need for a savior. So this was like preparation to show them that this Messiah that had been promised way back in Genesis, they needed that Messiah. They could not do this all on their own with the law. 
So that was the point. And then, again, God had to do it twice. So I just think that's amazing that Moses taught God out of, Moses taught God off the ledge, basically. The key relationship here is preparation for God's work. Moses lived 120 years, and God was not in a huge hurry to bring him into service. He lived 40 years in Pharaoh's household, basically as an Egyptian youth. He lived 40 years herding, like taking care of the, the herds in Midian. He married while he was out in Midian, just kind of chilling out with the animals. And it was that at that point that God called him. It was only his last 40 years of his life that God used him to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land, around the wilderness for 40 years, and back to the promised land. So, if you are potentially in the last one-third of your life, rest assured that God still may have lots of big plans for you. Just because, you know, you may think that the finish line is in view, that doesn't mean that it's time to pack up and say, Alrighty, Lord, I'm done. You never know what he might call you to do. A couple of things at the very end here that are really special to me, again, why I just love Moses, Moses, because of his sin at Meribah, was not allowed to enter the promised land. It just seems kind of unfair. He did all that, you know, bargaining with Pharaoh, and it got him to the promised land, and it got him around the 40 years of wilderness wandering, got him back to the promised land, and then, but because of his sin, he was not allowed to enter. Who has Numbers 28 to 19, or excuse me, 8 to 12? Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community, so they, they and their livestock will drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he <coughs> commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. The water just passed the community and the livestock. And the livestock was drink. But the Lord said to Moses and Because you did not trust me in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of, of this life, you will not bring this community in the land I give Thank you. So, God, here's the scene. They need water. Everybody's thirsty. The people need water. The animals need water. And God says, take the rod. You and Aaron, get everybody together, speak to the rock before their eyes. And Moses says, shall we bring water forth for you out of this rock? And then he lifts up his hand and he strikes the rock. And so basically, A, this event shows Moses had a degree of pride about this. The pronoun we, it wasn't, okay, now stand back, God's going to bring water out of this rock. It was, we are going to bring water out of this rock. So it demonstrated his pride, and it demonstrated his lack of faith that God would not do what he said just by Moses speaking the words. So by Moses saying, nope, that's not going to do the job. I need something a little, a little stronger, and striking the rock, that was a lack of faith. So because of those two reasons, neither Aaron nor Moses were allowed to go into the promised land. What was the first reason? His pride. That we shall, does yours not say we? No, no, no I just oh. suggest that. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly, yeah. Well, who lets him in here? Um, somebody needs to ban him. You're not allowed in my class anymore, you troublemaker. For those that don't know, it's my husband. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
She's going to have this theological discussion with me later about God's mind being changed. I know it's coming. Yes. But isn't it interesting that the water came from the rock? Yes. I mean, yes. even, even yes. in the, the middle of uh, pride and disobedience, the water was still there. Yep. I think it also shows that forgiveness doesn't necessarily eliminate consequences. Oh, you got it. Right, right, right. Yeah, that would have been something if the water didn't come from the rock. If it didn't, is that what you're saying? Yeah, because oh, yeah. he was disobedient. And, you know, God still brings about his purposes. I mean, his purpose was not to deprive the nation of Israel of water continuously until Moses decided to obey. But I, th I think you're right that he still brings about his purposes, even in the midst of our disobedience. Um, so great, great thoughts, except for Dave's. Um, um, sorry, again. Yes, he was disobedient, too. But more specifically, he also was prideful. He, he lacked faith, so thank you. However, God did not just say to Moses, sorry, bub, you messed up, you can't go in the promised land. He showed amazing mercy, I think, and compassion for Moses. So who has Deuteronomy 34, 4 to 6, and then also verse 10? The Lord said unto him, this is the land which I swear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give unto thy seed. Often to see with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor, and no man knoweth what he sepulchre her unto this day. And there arose not a prophet since in Israel, like unto Moses, and the Lord knew face to face. Thank you. So, two things in, in that passage I just really um, find interesting. So God takes Moses up to the mountain, lets him view it. He can't go in, but he gets to view it. Moses died there that day in the land of Moab, and he, God, buried him. Nobody knows Moses' exact burial site, and I've had major conversations with people as to why that is. The Israelites would have, you know, tried to turn that into some sort of worship center, or, you know, it, you know, there's lots of different reasons why, but for whatever reason, God himself buried Moses. I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he just, there's a whole, I don't know how he did it, but I just think it's neat that he buried Moses. And, and when you read the Old Testament, there are very few individuals in Scripture that had more face-to-face -face time with God than Moses. I would say none, probably. I would say none. Um, and well, in that last, that last phrase in this passage, since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses who knew the Lord face to face. Moses had an extremely unique relationship with the Lord. As this verse tells us, he was the very first prophet. A prophet we're going to talk about much later was an individual that delivered God's message to God's people. And that's exactly what Moses did. He was a leader, but he was also a prophet. So I just think that's a great sort of tombstone, I guess, for Moses. No one, there was no prophet like him at all. Uh, questions, comments, concerns? Yes. I just find it interesting that uh, uh, Moses, who was known as the lawgiver, was able to bring the people up to the promised land, but it took uh, Joshua, and Joshua is the Hebrew name, uh, Jesus. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so Aaron. Now, Aaron was a character. God obviously had a role for him to play, but, you know, I think when we think about Aaron, one of the first things that comes to mind is the idol worship at, you know, the base of Mount Sinai while Moses was receiving the law. Um, Aaron was brother to Moses. 
and he was the first priest for the nation Israel. So if Aaron was of the, live, the tribe of Levi, who else was of the tribe of Levi? Moses was. And so Moses was like had the, the um, uh, pedigree to be a priest as well, but God had a different role for him. He was not to be a priest, he was to be a prophet. So I think that's interesting. And sometimes in my mind, I think maybe, I don't know, like that's one reason why he had the ability to speak to God, because at that point the priest would be, well, I'm just going to get into a whole big bunch of stuff. But it, at this point, late, much later, we'll talk a lot more about prophets and how prophets interacted with God face-to-face much more than the priests did. The priests were more like the orchestrators of worship, and the prophets talked to God directly. But it's almost like back in the early part of the priestly line, there was more communication face-to-face with God. So it, I just find it interesting that Moses had the credentials, so to speak, of being a priest, but that was not God's role for him. The key event here, there's two parts of it. The first is God instructs on the, the uh, construction of the tabernacle. And who has Exodus 25, 8 to 9? I'm not going to make any sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Thank you. Very, very detailed, down to the size, the um, type of materials used how it was to be set up, constructed, uh, extremely detailed plans that God gave to Moses and that uh, the Israelites followed. Um, And it had to be followed to the law. This was to be God's traveling sanctuary while the Jews would be wandering in the wilderness. And he had a specific way that he wanted it, and they were to follow that. Now, when you read these passages in Exodus, it talks about precious metals and jewels and gold and where in the world in the middle of the desert did the Israelites have all this gold and silver and precious metals? Y'all are so smart. There's no tricking y'all. That's exactly right. Exodus 12, 35 to 36. I'll read that one. It says, Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested, requested, from the Egyptians, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. I, I find a little bit of humor in that. It's like the Egyptians are like, yeah, 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 whatever you need, just you know, go on. But they plundered the Egyptians. So all of this stuff that is used, uh, I'm sure the Egy- I mean the Israelites were wandering around the, the wilderness going, what am I going to do with all this purple linen or whatever? What am I going to do with all this gold? It's kind of heavy, and but there was a purpose. And I think it's so neat that God provided the materials he would need way before they were utilized. Um, so y'all, y'all are lighting up. You might have comments about that. Or... These pictures that I put in there, like this is obviously a model. I mean, you know, none of us were there. And so, you know, kind of an art, it's kind of like, I don't know, it reminds me of like a diorama that we had to make in grade school, but kind of a general idea of what it might have looked like. And obviously with the stakes and stuff, I mean, this had to be portable. This wasn't be, you know, a temple, brick and mortar and all that kind of stuff. That'd be much, much later. So it had to be portable. And then this is the more detailed actual diagram where things had to be put and why they had to be put in a specific place. The main thing about the tabernacle is that every article inside the tabernacle had a specific symbolic purpose. Um, It meant something. It was meant to convey something. And so everything was symbolic. Nothing was done by accident. 
And so just a couple of very easy comments about when you look at this diagram. The first thing is there was only one door, only one way to get to God, just like with us today with, with uh, uh, salvation. There's only one way to get to God, and that is through Jesus Christ, God's Son. The brazen altar, blood had to be shed before you could get to God. And that, was, um, that would obviously continue when Jesus came and shed his blood for us to have access to God. A heavy veil separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. Sinful man could not enter, average, sinful man could not enter the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. Of course, he was a sinful man, but that was his role. But the idea is there was a separation between a sinful man and a righteous holy God. And the mercy seat, where the, the, in, within the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat were contained there. And the mercy seat is where atonement for sin was made. And so every part of this, and I mean, you can read books about this, about every piece of uh, furniture and where it stood and how big it was and what it was made out of. Everything had um, significance. I'm not going to keep going on and on, but you'll get the idea. i got to go back now to the tabernacle, the key event. God has, constru- God has given specific directions on construction. That is completed. And now God inhabits the tabernacle. And this is awesome. This is like big stuff. Who's got Exodus 40, 32 to 38? 32 to 38? Yes. When they went into the tent of the near unto the altar they washed as the Lord commanded Moses and he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar and set up the hanging of the court grate so Moses did work then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle the children of Israel went unto, onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then their journey, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was upon it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Thank you. So if the construction is complete, that, that um, uh, phrase is thus Moses finished the work, it's done. And God himself inhabits, the presence of God inhabits, God's glory inhabits this tabernacle. Um, So when they are at the tabernacle, they are in the presence of God. And just in case they didn't get it, a cloud settles over the tabernacle by day and a, a pillar of fire or some form of fire over the tabernacle by night. And that is really their sign to pick up and move or stay put and chill. Um, so that's how God moves them around throughout these 40 years. The, the tabernacle being inhabited by God himself was so significant that people would lose their lives if they proceeded in without following God's law, without following God's prescribed way of doing things. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year, and they tied a rope to his foot in case he messed up and did something wrong and God struck him dead. They could yank his body out without losing their life in the meantime. Once Jesus died on the cross, we'll talk about much later when we get to Jesus, we know that veil was torn from top to bottom 
And now we have the ability to boldly approach the throne of grace. We don't have to worry about somebody tying something to our ankle. If I don't pray just the right way, if I don't approach the Lord just the right way, he's going to strike me down. We can boldly approach the throne of grace because of what Jesus did on Calvary. Does God inhabit the buildings of Wake Chapel Christian Church? Yes, he does. When we're not here, does he inhabit the buildings? When we're not here... No, when we're not here, God does not inhabit this building. What is the temple of the Holy Spirit now? The believer. The believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew 18, 20 tells us where two or three are gathered together, there I am in their midst. But we don't have to come to 905 Wake Chapel Road. It is 905. Parsonage is 909. I used to live there. So Anyway, 905 Wake Chapel Road in order to be in God's presence. Praise the Lord. We can be in the presence of the Lord wherever we are. If we have accepted him as Savior, He, the, God the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Um, so we don't have to come to a physical building. Now, of course, that being said, I am a preacher's daughter, so of course there is an importance to corporate worship. That doesn't mean, hey, you know, I never need to step foot in the buildings of Wake Chapel Christian Church. It just means we don't have to come here to be with God. The key relationship here to me is, I keep saying all these like, you know, whatever, superlatives, this is the best, this is the greatest, but I just get so excited when I study this stuff. The type of Christ here, I think, it's an, it's an amazing thing to realize what Jesus truly did for us. Keep this in mind. The high priests had to deal with their own sin before they could go into the Holy of Holies and address the sins of the nation. The high priests could only temporarily cover sin. They could not forgive sin forever. They could not put it away completely. They could only cover it. They couldn't remove it. But a high priest was coming. We know that would be Jesus. A high priest was coming one day that would have no sin of his own own to tend to before he addressed the sins of humanity. And a high priest was coming that could completely forgive sin, that could remove sin as far as the east is from the west, that sin for him was, was um, a non-issue. He could completely destroy it, the power of it, and destroy death in, in the meantime. Who has Hebrews 9, 11 to 14? For the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the young cows, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctified with purification of blood, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Thank you. That we could spend weeks unpacking this pa- this passage. A lot of us recognize, when we looked at the sacrificial substitutionary lamb or ram in the case of Isaac, you know, Isaac was destined to die on this altar. God had told Abraham, sacrifice your son. Abraham's ready to do it. And this ram is going to be the sacrifice for Isaac. He's going to take Isaac's place. And that was the first idea of a substitutionary sacrifice. And we all, I think a lot of most Christians think of Jesus as that sacrificial substitutionary lamb. 
But this verse tells us, start crying. this verse tells us, this passage tells us that Jesus was not only our substitutionary lamb, he was the high priest that did the work. The high priest here would go in with the blood of animals and the ashes of the heifer and do the best they could. But this passage tells us that the high priest, Jesus, took his own blood and went before the Father and destroyed the power of sin. And he alone offers permanent forgiveness of sin. Sorry, I just think it's so amazing to think that God was the priest and the sacrifice. That's an amazing thing to me. So... I don't even know what to say after that. <laughs> Comments, <That's> questions. <laughs> Somebody say amen. We need Dr. Allen here. Um, that is just go home. If you don't do anything else this week and read over that Hebrews passage, I mean, it is just to me, that's the crux of our salvation right there, that Jesus, God's only son, would do that for us. So sorry about the tears. Thank you all for coming. I hope to see you next week. Some-